you can call it whatever you want. You want to call it art, call it art. You want to call it science illustration, call it science illustration. Mm -hmm. You want to call it none of the above, cool by me. Mm -hmm. But is it doing the thing that I set out to do, which is more about engagement and learning and curiosity and wonder? Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever looked at a piece of art and then never seen the world in quite the same way again. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking with Jane Kim, whose voice you just heard, about what it means to make art or scientific illustrations of the natural world and the impact those images can have on our way of seeing. In this episode, we discuss nature blindness, the importance of place-based art, Western monarch butterflies, endangered frogs, the purpose of murals, intergenerational relationships with the earth, and how both viewing and creating art can change the way we look at the world and the choices we make going forward. Before we get to that, I want to celebrate a few things. One, this is the first episode of season three of Golden State Naturalist. Thank you to everyone who has been waiting so patiently for this episode to finally arrive. I've spent the season break coordinating with experts and traveling all over the state to record interviews on topics like tide pools, native bees, California condors, and so many more, including the next episode after this one, which will be on coast redwood trees with one of my all-time favorite naturalists, Griff Griffith. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss that or any of season three. And you probably already noticed the next thing I want to celebrate as soon as you opened your podcast app, which is the absolutely gorgeous new art by Danza Davis. You may remember the similar layout of the bear and poppies in the original design, which I created when I started the show a little over a year and a half ago now. I'm still super proud of that bear because I put a lot of time and effort into making it, but I wanted to give it a little glow up. And Jane Kim, the guest in this episode, actually connected me with a wonderful artist from her studio, Inkdwell, to create the new logo. So a big thank you to both Danza and Jane for making the new logo possible, and especially thank you to Danza for working so hard to capture the spirit of the original bear and to breathe new life into it. If you want to see more of Danza's beautiful work or tell her how much you love what she did with the GSN bear, make sure to go give her a follow at Danza Davis on Instagram. That's at D-A-N-Z-A-D-A-V-I-S. And if you're loving this new design as much as I am, you may want its picture on a mug or a t-shirt or a tote or a sweatshirt. And these are all things that now exist in the world. Just head to my website, which is goldenstatenaturalist.com, and click on the word store at the top, and you'll see everything you can put a bear on right there. And if you want any merch with the old design, make sure to grab that before it goes away soon. I also want to give a big thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. You're making this podcast possible, and I absolutely could not make it without your help. You allow me to travel to interview guests in the field, to work with an artist to get this fantastic new art created, to purchase things like microphones and subscriptions that I need to make the podcast. And I even finally got a desk. So now I have a dedicated workspace instead of a workspace shared with a pile of towels I haven't folded yet, which is amazing. If you're not a patron yet, you can become one for as little as $4 a month. That $4 helps me so much and gives you access to all kinds of video and audio extras from the show, lets you get your questions asked during interviews, and now there's even a brand new patrons-only book club that's meeting for the first time this month. And of course, if you're a patron, you can know that you're helping more people learn about and become connected with this biodiverse state on this beautiful blue dot 
by continuing to make this show possible and helping it reach more people. You can find me on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. But now let's get to the episode. Jane Kim earned her BFA in printmaking from Rhode Island School of Design and then attended CSU Monterey Bay, where she received a master's certificate in science illustration. She later founded Inkdwell Studio with her husband, Thayer Walker, and she's created gorgeous and highly recognizable works of public art all across the country, including the 2,500 square foot wall of birds at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and her two migrating mural series, one a series of bighorn sheep murals along Highway 395 in the Eastern Sierra, and one a series of monarch butterfly murals across the nation. She also creates fine art and has been the artist-in-residence at Facebook, the DeYoung Museum, and more. In addition to all of this, she is just a truly delightful, warm, welcoming human being, and I was honored to have gotten the chance to talk with her. So without further ado, let's hear from Jane Kim on Golden State Naturalist. I visited the Inkdwell studio in Half Moon Bay on an overcast day all the way back in March, and I was so nervous. Most of my interviews take place in hiking boots and clothes I don't mind getting dirty, in the kinds of places I feel most relaxed, beside a stream, under a canopy of oaks, or peering into a vernal pool. And the idea of going into an art gallery to talk to a super talented artist whose stunning images I'd been seeing on Instagram for at least a year at that point had me feeling more than a little bit out of my element. That is at least until I met Jane. She and her husband Thayer and another Inkdwell artist named Chelsea Roberts put me immediately at ease by showing me just unrestrained warmth and enthusiasm when I walked in the door. So bless them for being so kind, because I was able to relax and look around to take in the space. And the space is beautiful, filled with gorgeous paintings of species I think of as friends and family members, coast live oaks, river otters, monarch butterflies, and western pond turtles. It's also a working space with neatly organized cans of paint, brushes, laptops, and printers, A taxidermied bear named Cliff presides over the space, which is filled not only with paintings and the tools of the trade, but also less conventional art pieces. A pair of sneakers embroidered with blue-footed boobies, spore prints tacked to a far wall, and a small collection of sliced redwood logs that have been carefully scorched and scrubbed for printmaking. In the studio, I'm not in a forest or wetland but in a hyper-concentrated collection of species and ecosystems, most of them found in California and a few from across the globe. Defined that way, this studio may be the most biodiverse space I've visited yet. And despite the stillness of the art, the place feels alive, like you might catch that turtle bobbing to the surface for air out of the corner of your eye. Jane herself is petite in stature, and on the day that I visited was wearing coveralls, her hair pinned up and out of the way of paint. As she led me to a couple of chairs and we passed the numerous paintings covering the walls, I couldn't help but think of a line from Jane's bio on the Inkdwell website, which notes that her art career started when she was a little girl obsessively painting flowers and bears on the walls of her bedroom. I'm thinking about this as we get settled into our chairs and get our mics in place. And I ask her about the path from that little girl painting on the bedroom walls to who she is today, painting on not only canvases, but on the sides of massive water towers and 11-story buildings. 
Was it a linear path to becoming a professional artist or were there some twists and turns along the way? So definitely twists and turns along the way, but also oddly linear because mm. I do feel like one of the things that bring me the most joy about what I do now is that it's so related to when I was a kid. Mm. So I feel like I'm accessing the same things that inspired me then as I am now. And that feels so good to return back to that because I did feel a little lost along the way. Right. Um, but then there were these core things that, you know, I think stuck with me and coming back to them even reinforced more profoundly that this is my true north and passion. And I think, yes, I don't know if anybody's life is totally linear. Right. Another path that Jane could have taken was playing the violin, which she started at age three and continued all the way through school and even a little bit after going to art school. But she found that she kept coming back to art and back to making things with her hands, that this is how she tended to spend her time. And Jane's art for a long time has revolved around the natural world. You've been drawn to nature your whole life and in, in the works that you've created, but you know, I kind of, I look around and there are so many important issues in the world, right? There's yes. so many important things you could communicate about. So what do you think has drawn you to communicating nature? When I think about that, I still come back to that being the most foundational and important sort of disconnection that we've created in our, as modern humans. And we're not really going to be able to continue to evolve if we don't have a home to live on, if we don't start, you know, listening to the real lessons and wisdom that we can also bring into our everyday understanding and way of living. And we really are at odds with that now. And so I think part of why I do what I do is just, I want to make nature exciting for mm. people again. I want it to be cool. I want it to be hip and interesting and not this like woo-woo thing that only certain type of people can enjoy, but that, you know, there is so much curiosity that one could have that if we were really as connected to the natural world, like we would have no need for social media. We would have no need for, you know, a lot of the things that we have created for ourselves to right. occupy our boredom <laughs> and occupy like just so many things, right? This, and, and, and anything that can help re foster those connections. And also I'm learning them along the way. Mm. So the thing that I love most about being a scientific illustrator, especially, and not just an artist, because the, the art side does this too, but the science illustration allows me to go really deep in understanding my subject matter. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like endless material. You know, mm -hmm. I'm never going to feel like I run out of things to talk about, paint about, look at, learn about. So if that is something that can be sparked by my work and someone else, it's a huge win. Well, I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking work. And <laughs> Thank I, it's you. super inspiring the first time I saw, and I haven't even seen it in person, but just the photo of the monarch with the poppies, I was just like, all <gasps> <gasps> right, like it's almost like a, like a good kind of gut punch, you know yes. what I mean? Just like this like takes your breath away, absolutely. So I would imagine it's having that impact I hope people. so. Exactly. Yeah. And, and my favorite comment from somebody is after they have seen one of my pieces say, oh my God, I see this out in the world all the time now. And you know, it's like, it's not that it wasn't there before. It's just now they're paying attention. Absolutely. And that kind of leads me into a question that I had about this idea of 
how we look at things and, and how we learn what to look at. So when I was an undergrad at San Jose State University, I had a professor named Nick Taylor and he was teaching a fiction writing class. Mm -hmm. And in that class, he told me that the title of the book is the author's one opportunity to point their finger into the book and say, this is where you're supposed to look. Mm. And I kind of feel like there's a parallel there with murals. Totally. Because murals are, it's like your giant finger, like pointing like, this is where you should look. And so my question is, what do you think you're pointing at? What am I pointing at? That's a great question because it does differ from mural to mural. Of course, it's to honor the natural world and the environment that you're in, mm -hmm. but a lot of our murals are site specific too. Right. So we're highlighting what's right here and right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, it's like lifting a nature blindness of mm -hmm. any kind. Mm -hmm. I think if that, if I, if I could maybe distill it into like one thing, it would be that. And then there are layers of other meaning in every single one of my pieces, but that almost is secondary. Like what I had to say about it is definitely secondary to just capturing somebody's attention. And if I can capture someone's attention with realistic depictions of something in nature, I think that that's a pretty huge win because we go spend our daily lives pretty much ignoring it mm -hmm. and, and intentionally being away from it. And I think that was sort of the whole, you know, when cities were first designed and built, it was supposed to be without any nature in them at all, right? And, and to remove that. So I think it's more like I, the, the finger is that we are supplanting ourselves mm. in nature and we have made an intention to forcefully reject it and intentionally reject it. So maybe that's it. You know, I'm like kind of talking in circles and trying to arrive at a point. But yeah, it's hard to kind of nail it to one thing because each mural is pretty custom and specific to a story that is right there and then. That's so beautiful, though. And, and I think that it can be many things while also being the same one thing, because yeah. it might look different in different places or in different situations. But ultimately, you're connecting people with a place. Yeah. And so I think that leads really well into talking about your migrating murals. I would love to hear just an overview of what's going on with those. What's the story of the migrating murals? Sure, and I can definitely tell you when I had that moment because mm -hmm. a lot of ideas, they really do like, like, oh, I know what I need to do, like, or I want this. And so like, let's, how can I make this happen? I briefly mentioned the migrating murals in the intro, but just to refresh if you're not familiar with these, Jane has two separate sets of migrating murals, and they exist within or along the migration routes of the animals they represent. For instance, one set of migrating murals is of the Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep, an endangered species that live only within the Sierra Nevada mountains, and they migrate up and down in elevation to follow the available food at different times of year. Jane's six bighorn murals follow the route of Highway 395 in the Eastern Sierra where the sheep live. You may have seen some of these murals if you live in the Eastern Sierra or if you visited that area, which I highly recommend, by the way, because it's beautiful over there. And you may have seen Jane's other set of migrating murals, the monarch murals, in much more populated areas as far-flung as San Francisco and Orlando. Okay, back to how she came up with the idea for these murals. 
And so it was when I was in the science illustration program at CSUMB. And it's, you know, a two hour drive from San Francisco to Monterey. And I would not every weekend by any means make a trip back home, but Mm -hmm. I would go back and forth um, every now and again. And on those long drives, I would be really annoyed, of course, by the billboards. And I said, well, rather than having billboards that have advertisement, how interesting and cool would it be if they were actually somewhat interpretive Mm. of the place that you're in as you're driving through it. And so that like idea of wanting to, even in a quick moment, get a sense of place that could connect you, I I thought, wow, that could be so fantastic. And then, you know, migrating animals are without borders, without boundaries. And we are all connected by, say, the monarch butterfly, like almost all of the lower 48, Mm -hmm. plus Canada, plus Mexico, Right. right? We share this species in common. And so there was that whole other sense of like lost idea of community, you know, and that like, when we see a bird, we're so like egocentric and thinking, oh, we have this bird, like warbler right but then they go somewhere else for the winter they head south and they're spending you know their time only partially here but we only think of them in this one way like we probably don't get to know their winter plumage or you know whatever else we might not understand about this animal because they're not here year-round and so yeah there was just so many reasons that like I wanted to point out how important movement and erasing those boundaries were and that's even including our own human made boundaries you know and like trying to figure out how to start building and living our lives more integrated and without these sort of barriers and walls that are often so arbitrarily overlaid on the landscape totally it's so connected totally right and then and then we interrupt that connection so that's another Definite, like we have really interjected ourselves in <laughs> this fragmentation. Yeah, right? and so it's it sounds like it's kind of this way of pointing out that we don't have to live in this fragmented way while also connecting people hyper locally, really. But yeah. it can be something much bigger. But also hyper locally connecting them. Yeah to where they are. Absolutely. And then when I first started it, I also was putting a lot of emphasis on on threatened, endangered Mm -hmm. animals as well, because, you know, everything that we are doing are driving a lot of these species that we're highlighting Mm -hmm. into peril. So there was a point to the awareness of it, you know, is kind of the first step of building the momentum to want to even make any effort to protect it. So the bighorn sheep, for example, you know, the which was our first migrating mural series, and it goes from Lone Pine to Levining in the Eastern Sierra. And those animals are almost impossible to see unless you're really high up hiking in the wilderness and know, know what to look for and where right. to look. Like you're probably not gonna just like run into a bighorn sheep or your average person is not going to. And so bringing those back down to the people was something that felt really important to me too. And there were people who called the Sierra Nevada Bighorn Sheep Foundation saying like, I've lived here my whole life and I didn't know that we had bighorn Mm. sheep in these mountains. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just helping along on an awareness level as well. And yeah, and I love it too, because I feel like it's something to be proud of. You know, it's something where it's like there's a sense of civic pride, like we have these animals and also now this beautiful art depicting these animals, right? And it's something we can be proud of and our community then can rally around that thing. And that's exactly what happened out there. 
You know, I think that that gained a lot of traction mm -hmm. for support mm -hmm. for these animals. And it was all of a sudden like, wow, like it, that's another thing that public art does. It, without trying, it sort of already puts the idea that, oh, someone cares enough to make this as big and, it, mm -hmm. and in the forefront as it is as a, you know, in a mural format. And then all of a sudden, I think like without even meaning to, they internalize and adopt that sort of pride or sentiment towards that animal too. Absolutely, I think that's really true. I think that, you know, for me growing up, and I grew up in Napa and I grew up in Oak Woodlands and, and those kinds of areas. And I think that for me, feeling connected to those places, I, we, my husband and I both grew up in the same valley, right? Yeah. But I grew up climbing those those coast live oaks and I grew up collecting acorns and catching newts and you know all of that kind of stuff and and he really I wish I was friends with you right okay. yeah, no we would have had yeah. so much fun <laughs> um, but I I feel like I feel so tied to that valley yeah. that is my home yeah. right and he's like eh, I don't Whatever. feel like I don't feel like connected to that place mm -hmm. right and and I think that when you feel that connected to a place like I feel fiercely loyal yes. to so many things like Napa in particular, but also just California and like Oak Woodlands. And, and I think that when you know a place, part of that first step is seeing it and yeah. knowing that it's there. And then the next step is having that level of interaction or intimacy with that thing. Yeah, I want to tell you a really funny story about one of our latest murals. Um, it's a new series that's in addition to the Migrating Mural, but it's mm. called City and Nature. Mm. And basically, I wanted to just have that slight turn of phrase for that reason that we build our cities in nature, not the other way around. And we remove the nature, but it's funny how often it's talked about, ooh, there's so much nature in the city. And that's, that could be always how it is. Right. There's um, so much city in this nature. There's, yeah, there's so much city in this nature is kind of the way that I'd like to yes. you know, think about it. So our first one was for the Arinda Public Library. This is actually just a hodgepodge of some of the species that were in that mural. But there was so much energy around that river otter because there was one person who was on the board or did something that was a decision-making opinion mm -hmm. that, well, I don't like this river otter. We don't have river otters here. And it was like, well, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean that there are no river otters. And then there was another person who's like, actually there are, and they had footage of a river otter coming into their pool. And so then it was like, wow. Oh, and so now just to even like for the residents of Arinda to be able to see, because the, the otter is one of the biggest animals on this mural, oh, and it it just absolutely takes up a you know almost the entire wall. And so you know I I love being able to point out the hidden nature, you know, because all of it actually is to some degree or to large degree hidden in front of human eyes. Often it's trying to yeah, hide. Yeah, it's, it's often it's trying to hide, exactly. So I think that that's another part of the, of maybe your first initial question of like, what's the finger, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that you're trying to point out that like, pay attention here. It is that, it's like, pay attention, this is right here in your home. Oh, another awesome thing that Bay Nature Seasonal oh, yes. Almanac. I love that. In this in the spring issue, I was assigned to illustrate a ringtail, and I nearly fell off my chair when I saw that yes. list because I was like, "Wait, what?" Yes, I that the, one of my favorite things about that assignment <laughs> is that I get to learn 
about Bay Area nature that I'm still learning about, right? And so, or that I didn't, I wasn't aware of. And so the ringtail one totally took me by surprise. And I, I still kind of, kind of in shock over it. It looks like a lemur. I know. You like a lemur creature in, in California, what? Exactly. <laughs> and I love the little blurb that um, accompanies it because it mm. ends with like the cutest animal you'll probably never see. But Absolutely. they're here. So they're here, was, they're flying under your radar. They're so under our radar, but I hope I get to, maybe I'll just have to, you know, make a nocturnal effort. If you've listened to the Sutter Buttes episode of this podcast, you've heard me talk about ringtails because one of the places they live is in the Sutter Buttes, which is the smallest mountain range in the world. And it's right smack in the middle of the Sacramento Valley. And I went to the Buttes with a researcher named Dave Wyatt and his field ecology class to try to trap some ringtails in order to record data and release them. But on the day that we went, the traps came up empty, which was a bummer and also maybe not a great sign. I still want to interview Dave, who is a phenomenal researcher and naturalist, but we don't have anything on the calendar right now. So just know that I'm aware of the ringtails and hoping to get you some more good ringtail content at some point in the future. Also, ringtails may look a little like lemurs, but they're actually related to raccoons. But ringtails aren't the only things we're not noticing when we go outside. There's plenty of non-human life around us all the time, and much of it is a lot more common than the elusive ringtail. When we come back, Jane shares her perspective on nature blindness and some creative ways to work against it, as well as so much more about art and what it can do to broaden our perspectives. Now, back to the conversation with Jane Kim. And so I think that what that brings me to, actually, is this idea of nature blindness. Yeah. And I've heard people talk about plant blindness before, but you're the first person I've ever heard use the phrase nature blindness. Really? Yes. Oh, that can't be. Well, I, because I certainly feel like I heard it, but it's, I don't feel like I've made that up. So yeah, but it is, it is it's like, mm -hmm. absolutely, just turn it off all the time. Right. And so I was just wondering, I guess, if you could say a little bit more about like, what is nature blindness and how pervasive do you think that is? And what are some of the ways that, you know, public art can help alleviate that? Hmm, I think it's incredibly pervasive. Mm -hmm. I think we teach our children to be blind to nature. Wow. Like I think that we don't actively encourage that curiosity that all children are gonna have to explore and ask questions about what is that plant? Who is this? What is that? You know, because we, we, that's not what, what, what we teach them. It's like, ooh, look at that store, or ooh, look at this thing, or that. It's like we point out the human things. So, you know, there have been tons of studies out of kids being able to name, like, so many more logos and, you know, products than being able to identify a sparrow by name, right. you know? And, like, that is a huge problem. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think that it's, I think you touch on something really important because it's intergenerational nature blindness. Yes. And when you have parents who don't know, you know, I was hiking in Sequoia National Park over the summer and I had my kids, which is like, you know, I understand why people don't want to take their kids out hiking. It's not easy, <laughs> it's not easy to do this. But we were out there, we are just on a really easy trail and there was this little girl with her hands in a giant poison oak bush. Oh. And she was just touching the leaves, like, and I was just like, you know, I don't want to interfere with anybody's life, but I was like, you know, just so you know, this is what that is, and here's what you should do. And, and just a um, big FYI. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and I get it from a parent's perspective. If you don't know, either you're not originally from this place, and so you don't know the plants and animals, or you just have been so separated from it intergenerationally, the one thing you know is, well, it could be dangerous, so don't touch anything. Exactly. And so you're trying to keep your kids safe. Yeah. Yeah. But then you break this 
vital relationship that they have to the planet that they live on. Totally. And I think that, you know, if a kid does ask a parent, like, oh, what is this? And they're just like, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how dismissive mm-hmm. is that? So then why should the child care or continue to ask if this is something that they should care about? Right. right? And so I, I do think it kind of starts there. And so we, this is like years and years and generations and generations of this attitude being passed down to us. So right. I, I can't really get mad at the state that we're in just because it's so long, mm-hmm. you know, that this way of being and thinking has persisted and been encouraged, you know? So I don't know. It's, it's real. I just want to offer a side note here, which is that if you're a parent or you have kids in your life in any capacity, just please be reassured that you don't have to know everything in order to foster a kid's curiosity. I think that we as adults sometimes feel like we need to respond to a kid's questions with definitive answers. We don't have to do that at all. Instead, we can respond by modeling curiosity about the things we don't know. We can say something like, I don't know what that plant is, but I do notice that there are little holes in the leaves. I wonder if it's good food for caterpillars. I constantly don't know the answers to my kids' questions in nature. But responding like this gives them permission to get curious, and they almost always jump in with their own observations and hypotheses. And if you're worried about safety and don't know what poison oak or stinging nettles look like, or which wild foods are edible, you can always tell the child you're with, I'm not sure if this plant is okay to touch. Let's just stand right here and look at it and see what we notice. What colors do you see on the flowers? So those are some great ways to support kids' curiosity about the natural world. But sometimes it's also nice to have ways to inspire them and give them information too, which is one of the many reasons why I love Jane's work. So I do think that public art murals inherently, you know, are going to provide a teaching moment. So a lot of our, almost all of our murals have interpretation. So a Mm. sign that identifies all the animals. Mm. So like if a kid, and and kids are our biggest fans. They're the ones who like come and be like, wow, look at that. And then, you know, then they can read the sign and they can see what is that. Or if a kid asks their parent, then they can all go look at that and have it be identified. So I, I would love personally to see more access to, you know, I had this, I think there was a, a woman, her handle on Instagram is local ecologist, and I think mm. she's in New York mm-hmm. or somewhere in the East Coast, but she did it. But I also was like, oh my God, I've been wanting to do that for years, but she mm-hmm. just sort of on her own in her neighborhood put little tags on like the trees. I love that. Yeah, so that like if someone's walking by, they would know the name of that or what kind of tree that is. And I had this dream of doing that in San Francisco and giving a little name tag to every single tree that's in SF. I'm so centered around wanting our murals to be specific to this location, you know, that it's like, learn about this place. And certainly, you know, anytime Thera and I go to a new country, a new city, one of the first things I want to do is like get a field guide of the flora and fauna of mm-hmm. that place because I'm not going to know it. And I naturally am going to be like, oh, what's this plant? What's that plant? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that impulse, the, the, the curious impulse. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you're taking, you know, these concepts, you're giving people a way in and you're doing it where people are. Yes. And I just, I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Because you do have to meet people. You can't ask people to change. (laughs) You can just offer them tools that maybe they'll pick up on and appreciate and that will create the change. Right. And I think that's something really beautiful to me. And I feel like it's a, it's a form of science communication. And I think that 
you know, people might not see art and think that's science communication a mm -hmm. lot of times, but it 100% is. And I think that giving people an invitation rather than a keep out sign. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. Thank you. Well, you touched on something that's very interesting to me because it's a tension point that I have internally, which is that science illustration versus art. And mm. I often think it's like the other way around I struggle with is that this isn't art because it's too like mm. literal and communicative and educational. Mm. So it's like its own thing. And so I, I also place a lot of emphasis on trying to break boundaries and mm -hmm. operating in non-definitives. And one of our trademarks is not knowing exactly where to place us because we're not mm -hmm. exactly like straightforward scientific illustration, right. although we do that sometimes. Yeah. And then we're not like art for art's sake and, you know, super conceptual and, you know, ego focused or human. Frankly exclusive. Yeah. And frankly exclusive. So it's like we kind of decided that we have no boundaries either, just just like the, the natural world. And I'm not going to be put in these like little silos of, of defining, you know, what we are, what, who we are. It's actually, an, it's more an action. Like this is what I want our work to mean and represent. I don't care. You can call it whatever you want. You want to call it art, call it art. You want to call it science illustration, call it science illustration. You want to call it none of the above? cool by me, mm -hmm. but is it doing the thing that I set out to do, which is more about engagement and learning and curiosity and wonder? Much more purpose-driven. Yes. And so I wonder too, would you say you have figured out where the line between science illustration and art is, or would you prefer to erase the line entirely? I would love to erase the line entirely. And I think the thing is, is that it does that naturally. And we forget that even all of these definitions are constructed by people. So those are meant to change and shift. And so now I don't know if there even really is like a clear, I'm finding more and more as we keep doing this work. And I do think like the mood of the uh, nation is changing mm -hmm. a little bit more and, and having more focus on the environment and climate change, of course, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden has pushed those boundaries aside a little, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm seeing so many more artists coming in and taking on a practice that feels a bit outside of standard, what we used to think as, as art like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to continue to challenge lines when they've been drawn yes. by us, especially. <laughs> Anything that's created by people, I'm like, it's just a human construct. That's all it is. <laughs> it's not anything finite. It's not anything right or even wrong, frankly. It's just right. what we've decided collectively is our boundary, our guidelines, our whatever. And we need them. But certainly, you know, it's funny. There, I, I was having this conversation about we've clearly made so many mistakes, but I don't know how to course correct at this point. So I guess for me, like my work is not meant to solve that problem, mm -hmm. but it's more about getting people reconnected with the lost connection. Like, you're not solving that problem of how are we gonna fix all these things. You're solving the problem of how do you even make people aware that this is there? Yeah. But that is so foundational to solving the other problems because those problems aren't gonna get solved if people don't know, you know, how to love the home yeah. that they're in. And also like the experience, we're, we're shaped and taught 
that money is the most important mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. We're shaped and taught that, you know, nature doesn't really matter. Like all of these things. So it's really more like, how do we reshape the values that humans in especially the United States operate? And I don't know, but I do get the sense that it does start from emotional connections because we also are fully emotional creatures. I don't care what anyone says about our rationality, that's bollocks. We are driven by emotions first and foremost, always. Well, and then we use our brains to rationalize our emotional yes. choices. Yes. Right. The brains come in, but not at the point where you might think. Totally. And then we've also done a, a disservice because we're taught that emotions are not meant to be mm. taken seriously either. So now we've we're just, it. yeah, we've just really made a big mess of our, mm -hmm. ourselves here. I'm, I'm, I'm only really I can only speak to the Anglo-Saxon experience because that is my experience. Right. Even though I'm Korean American, I have obviously my culture that bleed into that. But I'm American. I was right. raised in this economy, this environment, these standards. Mm -hmm. So for sure. I really like that Jean brings up how our way of interacting with the planet is a cultural thing. I find this idea to be incredibly empowering. Because culture is something that we, as members of a culture, can change and evolve over time. And like Jane, I'm referring to Anglo-American culture here, because that's also my background and experience. But I love the idea that we don't have to settle for the things we don't like about our culture. Instead, we can push back on the shortcomings. And I love that Jane took this idea and ran with it. She didn't like that she saw annoying billboards on long drives, so she thought of something more worthwhile to put up in large public spaces instead. And by bringing images of local threatened and endangered species into public spaces, she challenges the idea of what is worthy of taking up space in our culture, on our streets, and in our minds as the images we see every day. People can sometimes be dismissive of art. And I'm probably preaching to the choir if you've made it this far in this episode. But I think we should be very careful not to underestimate the power of art of all kinds. The images we see and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are hugely impactful. And if we see ourselves as part of a culture that chooses to put up massive paintings of our native species on the sides of buildings to honor them on that scale, maybe that can impact how we see ourselves, the very kinds of people we think we are. And maybe that can even impact how we behave in the world, whether we choose to donate money to restoration projects, or whether we grow native plants in pots on the patios of our apartments. But this external cultural kind of impact isn't the only kind of impact Jane's work has. So I have a question for you about this impact on yourself, right? So how has doing this work actually changed the way that you look at the natural world or has it? So much. Thank you so much for asking that question because it's a daily, mm. almost like conversation and resetting. And I'm continually searching for answers that resonate with me and allow me to move through the world with an understanding or even empowered to like have tools for myself to process the way we operate because I don't always feel like I have a lot of choice. Like it's, this is the construct that I live in. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, how do I make peace? So it's not so much like, how has it changed my viewpoint on nature? It's more, how has it changed my relationship with the construct that human beings mm -hmm. have created for me and this world that I live in? And how, what parts of it 
work for me and what parts of it don't and what parts that don't can I create artwork that can maybe help shift or find a new perspective that someone could maybe also connect to that it's like oh I can look at it this way Mm -hmm. and it's helpful you know and and so I think you'll find that a lot of my work while you know honestly I was just thinking in my mind I'm like well thank you for giving me a platform to just vent about (laughs) vent at you on this stuff but I really try hard in my work not to be negative. And I really try hard in my work not to be polarizing. Mm-hmm. And I really try hard to try to find the common ground, which is the natural world. And that's honestly what it actually also for me, it's like, wow, this is the only connective tissue that we can rely on that's true. Because everything else is a human construct. And frankly, I just don't trust human constructs. So I trust nature. (laughs) And so that's really like my guiding light of, you know what, these subjects can really be unifying. And that's maybe the the finger point too. So I think maybe you're helping me arrive at some of my own pointers, you know? Yeah, like, look at this. I love that. And I think that that is so, we've seen that to be true in recent history with things like the Wallace Annenberg wildlife crossing, Mm -hmm. right? It's like that has transcended political walls that we've put up, right? And the us versus them and all of that kind of stuff, which I think people have very good reasons for disagreeing with each other on the issues that they disagree on. Yet we have this thing that we can see that is tangible. Yeah. Which is these mountain lions can't make it. They're, They're going to be too isolated. They're going to go locally extinct. Totally. How do we help these populations? And it's something that it doesn't matter your walk of life. It doesn't matter your political orientations or anything. Yeah. This is something tangible we can do in the world. Yes. And I think that keeping that positive perspective, you know, it can be hard in Mm -hmm. a, in a, you know, there have definitely been moments for me where it's like this climate grief and this anxiety. I suffer from that for sure. Yeah. How do you, how do you stay away from despair sometimes? Right. But at the same time you look. And you, you still, the, the, the population is a fragment of what it used to be. You still do see yeah. that monarch butterfly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I'm just grateful that in my lifetime, I just really want to honor and understand what I have in my lifetime because that's going to change. It's going to grow. I have a niece and nephew who are incredibly important to me. Thayer and I do not have kids and nieces and nephews. I should like mm-hmm. pluralize that and I don't know what their experience will look Mm. like. You know, I don't know if they're going to see the same things that Mm -hmm. we see in our lifetimes. That's already changing in in our short lifetime, right? Glaciers Mm -hmm. are melting in real time. Like there are so many active changes. And I also often think of our murals as monuments to things potentially lost too. And I don't like to think of it that way. But if we say in California, lose our, our Western monarch migrating population. I want to at least be a part of the effort that has monumentalized it on a giant 11 story building in San Francisco, you know, and saying, be part of that community that cared to put this in the forefront of our city. You know, it's a, it's an act of resistance. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, we're not taking this lying down. Yeah. We're, we still care we about tried. this thing. Some, we tried. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm getting emotional. Because it's like that kid, it's like there were people who cared. There were people who really, really tried. 
you weren't left this planet without somebody trying to fight for it for exactly. you. Exactly. And I'm already speaking in defeatist terms. You see that? That's how much we have to actually accept the demise of the world as it was and the world that we know it and just watch it unfold in the way it's going to be. And part of that is up to us, but part of it is also just natural cycles and, and that happens. And, and so, you know, I'm not out by any naive means thinking that we're going to keep something exactly how it is for all of time. That's not or at, go back to the way it was. or go back to the way it was. That's certainly not my point either, mm-hmm. but it's more that like right here and right now, let's, emphasize what is what's great and hopefully when children learn about history if that's even something that continues to be taught to children mm-hmm. we can say like this used to be an animal and there used to be lots of organizations and people that cared about this you know and tried, and tried really Simpsons, hard right working with them yes and i think too it's like if there is one western monarch left in the world that butterfly still matters even if you know that it can't reproduce because there's only one. Yeah. And when it's gone, it still matters. Yes. And it I matters think of, that it was here. I think of Martha, the passenger pigeon, mm. you know. If you're not familiar with the story of passenger pigeons, I'm sorry I have to be the one to tell you this. Back at the time of European contact, there were somewhere between three and five billion passenger pigeons in North America. That's billion with a B. There are many accounts of them having been so abundant as to black out the sky when they migrated. And while Native Americans did hunt passenger pigeons, settlers took this to a completely different level. The combination of extreme overhunting and deforestation made passenger pigeon numbers decline gradually until 1870 and then plummet between 1870 and 1890. By the turn of the century, there were effectively no passenger pigeons left in the wild. A passenger pigeon named Martha lived her life in captivity in the Cincinnati Zoo. She died in September of 1914 and is thought to be the last passenger pigeon ever to have lived. Her body was preserved when she died, and you can actually Google her name and see a fairly recent photo of her. If you're driving or washing dishes right now and can't do that, just imagine a morning dove with a more reddish tone and sort of reddish eyes, even though passenger pigeons weren't super closely related to morning doves. And of course, these birds aren't the only examples of animals that have gone extinct or gotten down to dangerously low population sizes in captivity due to human actions. I think of, you know, so many animals that are like the only one in their captivity, like there's more in captivity than in the wild, they're extinct in the wild, and like all of that still matters. And so that effort of like, sometimes people struggle with zoos and aquariums, Mm -hmm. but I'm so grateful when they have a conservation program or rehabilitation or any kind of effort that shows that there's active effort mm-hmm. being made. So I agree, you know, I'm, I'm sad that whether there's this like poison dart frog, like the Panama dart frog or mm-hmm. something that's like only in captivity at this point or very few in the wild or extensively extinct, I guess. I tried to look this up, and apparently there are over a hundred species of poison dart frogs, so I'm not sure which one Jane was referring to. But I did find out in my Googling that poison dart frogs are not poisonous at all when bred in captivity. And it's thought that this is because their diet in captivity is different from what they eat in the wild, which is largely termites and ants that eat 
poisonous plants in the jungle. And if this fact makes you want to rush out and get one as a pet, there are some things you should know first. One is that a site I looked at did mention that their lack of poison in captivity doesn't mean it should be a free-for-all for handling them, because too much handling can be harmful for the frog. And the other thing you should know is that while poison dart frogs for the pet trade are usually bred and sold legally, they're also sometimes illegally snatched from their homes in the wild and sold as pets. And if the seller says it's a rare species and it costs a lot of money, those in particular are red flags that an endangered animal might have been taken out of its habitat for money. So definitely do some research before you get one, or maybe just set a picture of one as your lock screen instead. Okay, but Jane was talking about endangered species in zoos. But I'm so glad that they're there in captivity for people to know that this animal was once in the wild, right? So that's kind of that evolution of like accepting the outcome and then continuing to adapt our value system of, you know, change and adaptation of talking about these things, right? Right. And if you can grieve something, it means that you love that thing, Mm -hmm. right? And I've never seen a more powerful motivator than love in my entire life. (laughs) A hundred percent. You know, it's like you you will go out and do anything for love. Yes. (laughs) Anything. Yes. Yes. And so if you love that one poison dart frog that's left in that little terrarium or whatever in some zoo somewhere, yeah. Then what are you going to try to do for the rainforest? Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. So I love any effort. Effort is great in all sizes and all shapes. And maybe a little bit of a happier, lighter note is, you know, I understand the difference between correlation and causation, but I, I'm just saying <laughs> your monarch murals went up and then the Western monarch numbers started to go back up. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so, so kind. But yeah, no, there is, I definitely did not even once think of that at all. You know, do you see, though, do you see your work having this tangible impact in some large or small way in the, in the world, making a difference for those animals? Yes, I think for sure. Not to say that we don't have impact, but I think that the impact that I've seen is more in the awareness of the animal and love of the animal starting to, you know, especially with the bighorn sheep, for Mm. example, you know, I feel like creating those six murals along that highway really allowed for people to rally around the bighorn sheep, Mm. you know, so that felt like a big win to me. And, you know, I see these sort of wins in small and more immediate moments in like conversation or just people sharing that like, wow, I saw monarch butterflies or like I'll get a text and be like, there's monarch butterflies everywhere. And the fact that they would think to let me know, you know what I mean? Like that is a type of love that I am acutely aware of. And when anyone sends me pictures or they say, Jane, do you know what this is? You know, like Mm. I love that kind of, you know, relationship that, I am, I can offer that to people and that, oh, I know who'll know who, what, you know, what species this is. Let's ask Jane. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And it makes me think too about how, you know, there's this, I have to look up the research about this and add it in later, but there's this, this research that shows that more diverse groups make better decisions. Yeah. Okay. There's not just one study on this. There are a lot of studies. According to an article in the Harvard Business Review, which draws on a lot of that research, 
more diverse groups are better at investing, think more accurately in mock trial situations, and are even more innovative than homogenous groups. The article, which I'll link in the show notes, asserts that non-homogenous teams are simply smarter. Working with people who are different from you may challenge your brain to overcome its stale ways of thinking and sharpen its performance. And it kind of makes me think, too, if you expand not only diversity within humans, which is important, but then also what about outside of humanity, like other species bringing in that diversity that makes our community so much stronger Uh and it's a way to connect with other humans. Totally. But it also ties us deeply to the place where we live and it makes this whole ecosystem, right? That we are part of our ecosystems. We may not realize it, but it makes that so much stronger. Absolutely. I 100% agree. I was just thinking as you were saying that, it's funny that like sometimes that inclination is there and the broader connection isn't there. So like when someone has property and they have to cut that tree down and it's so painful because it's like the tree that represents that home and their lawn and I don't think they're even thinking of that as like oh you're taking you're removing nature but Mm -hmm. they form this connection with that tree that one single tree and I had that experience as a kid I grew up outside of Chicago in a suburb called Mount Prospect and in our backyard we had a huge willow tree and it like you know kind of came out from the base in three trunks and I would just like tuck myself in like that middle of that trunk but then at a certain point it just got too messed up with their power lines Mm -hmm. and ultimately it just was unsafe and I you know safety is also something that drives human beings too so you know we did have to cut that down and I remembered like how painful it was to watch that tree get cut down and when I was a kid, it wasn't like, they're destroying nature. But it, it, that wasn't right. what I was thinking. Yeah. It was like, oh my God, they're destroying this thing that is like part of my happy place mm-hmm. that, you know, is this connection. So I'm, I think that like, if we can think of our planet as a home in that sense mm-hmm. too, like you were saying, like your, your connection to the, the valley that your, your partner doesn't have, mm-hmm. it's that same thing because like you formed an emotional bond with the living things that are in that place. Mm-hmm. The living and non-living things. And, and living and non-living things. The fog rolling over the cliffs. Yeah. You know? Totally. Wow. Wow. Oh my God, it might as well be alive. It's yes. like <laughs> it's, so it's alive. own thing, right? right? Totally, and like rocks. I kind of still think of rocks as living things, for sure. <laughs> I see that. I can see that. They have personalities all the time. All Absolutely. The time. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe it's like kind of reframing. I don't know what ter- what it is, but like I do think for a good lot of people, the word nature even just is a turn off. Mm. They're like, I'm going to get dirty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Well, and the more disconnected people are too. But if that happens, then how do you reconnect? So I'm so glad you asked this because this just sparked another thing that I actively think about a lot is that I understand that it's not for everybody to actually be out in nature Mm. and experiencing the nature. But what I love about art and what I love about book learning is that you can still learn about Mm. it and observe it in different ways. And so I was one of those kids. Like I didn't necessarily spend a lot of time like beyond you know like this tree experience where i love playing in the dirt and like picking apples or what have you and i loved animals to death but Mm -hmm. like i was grew up in a suburb you know where like 
I would say that nature wasn't exactly wild and it was very groomed and lawned and right. hedges, but I would actively like, so I, now I just sound like a total dork, but I would like <laughs> actively just like read our Encyclopedia Britannica's. I like I remember my mom and my dad like let a traveling salesperson, like door-to-door salesperson into our house one day. And it was someone who was selling like the volume of you know, encyclopedias and uh-huh. my mom and dad purchased them and they purchased another set of books called, oh gosh, like children's craft or something like that. Mm. It was like this really cool volume of like making things. And, and then, so like, oh, and another one was this huge map of the solar system wow. that like took up our entire dining room table. I love your parents for buying that. Yes, me too. That is so great. Totally. Me too. And so then it was like, my experience and learning was a little bit more like that, like mm-hmm. from a academic or like reading and learning. And they would drop me off at like the library every Saturday, oh. like as a way to like get rid of the kids. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to dump you here for like a eight hours. Don't be too crazy. <laughs> yeah. For eight hours. And so I still loved nature through books and through art and making and illustrations and all of that. So like, there's so many ways to connect with the natural world that doesn't have to be in nature. Cause I know right. that people don't love it. Like yeah. I don't want to be rained on and like, hot. hot. <laughs> yeah, fine. I get it. Then this is what we were talking about earlier, like meeting people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm not judging you if you're not like, no, I don't really like going tide pooling. Right. <laughs> like I don't want to get my hands wet or it's cold or this or that. And you can't judge that. That's right. just someone's preference. But like, you can't make someone do anything. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But you can still make them love nature. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's great. Or show them how to love nature. It's so much more inclusive. Yeah. Too, and I think that that it, it opens it up to many types of inclusivity yeah. because people like where they live, their income. There's so many barriers sometimes to, or their physical abilities, right, to entering these spaces that we think of as nature, even though Mm -hmm. I would argue, right, we're in nature, like you said, city in nature, right? (laughs) Like I would agree with that. But at the same time, going to that national park or even the state park or the park down the road can be a barrier to entry. Totally. For different people. So I love the inclusivity of that. (laughs) Thank you. One of the things I was wondering about is how you research these subjects. Like I'm thinking about the Cornell, the, the ornithology, the wall of birds, right? Like I'm imagining you with like this this ornithology textbook and like a bowl of cereal. Like, what, how did you? I mean, that's not far off. Sometimes, a I do love cereal. I might be projecting though. Like, no, no, I no, love no cereal. <laughs> no, it was. I mean, it was so many different things. Mm-hmm. Like from you know watching videos to reading mm-hmm. to visiting different collections. So I made a stop at the Field Museum just because I know that they're the epic collection of birds there. Mm-hmm. So Dr. John Fitzpatrick, the former director of the Lab of Ornithology, used to work at the Field Museum. So oh. he put me in touch with uh, the curator there. And Great. so I spent like two days just going through all of their specimens. And then they have this huge bird hall um, Mm -hmm. of taxidermied birds. Mm -hmm. And I was dying to be able to travel and actually like see a lot of these birds in person. But like majority of those birds, I have to do this format of learning about them. That's totally not in observation of the actual nature. 
So, you know, there was a lot of, I worked very closely with the scientific advisor to make sure the accuracy of my birds was there. And I learned, I just learned so much through that process of doing that project. <laughs> I bet. That I was bet. wild. I think about the last person I interviewed was John Muir Laws, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I think about how his, you know, perspective on nature journaling. Yeah. Is, is very much like that. And my limited experience nature journaling, I'm like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, which direction the veins went on this leaf or right. these very fine details. And, and it seems, if you just glance at it, it doesn't seem that important, right? But then when you start looking a little bit more closely, it, it comes alive and you pay attention and you respect it more and you love it more. Totally, I think totally. that's really, really beautiful. Okay, I have a listener question for you. Okay. Tori is wondering how we can find and support local artists who are working on representing the natural world in thoughtful ways. So she's wondering, do we just Google like nature artist in my area or is there like a tool or a resource people can use if they're looking to support local artists? Oh, well, there is the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators oh. and that's a national guild and there are um, many like pockets and states and some are stronger than others or mm -hmm. have more activity than others. But you can certainly look for illustrators that way. The science illustration program at CSUMB, mm. you can go through the, um, their gallery of like all former students wow. of that program and engage with the work that they made when they were in the program. Mm -hmm. One other idea for Tori on that is just to look at the murals around town. Like, for example, in Sacramento, I just saw on Richards Boulevard the other day a fairly new mural that had like elderberries in it. And so there's like some native species going on. And I think a pipevine swallowtail butterfly was also in this mural. So I don't know, it might be worth going and finding murals in your area that are kind of the style that you like and seeing if you can figure out who made them. Okay, last question yeah. for you. So what about this work that you do still takes your breath away? The information, honestly. Mm. Like, I think it's like, whoa, there's just so much that I don't know that is really exciting. Like, I love that I don't know so right. much. And that even like, in, I'm looking at the Coast Live Oak in this print right now. And like, how many times have I depicted Coast Live Oak their acorns, their flowers, their leaves, and I still feel like I have more to observe and get to know and mm. pay attention to. Mm. And so I don't know, it's like, it's, en it's just endless, just absolutely endless. And I think that that's maybe the most comforting part of it. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. I like it. Yeah. yeah. I got well, carried away. No, that's great. <laughs> seriously, seriously I like, I've never should. been given this like opportunity <laughs> to just like speak my mind on these oh my things. Goodness. Really? So is, yeah, kind of. Wow. Totally. Well, that makes me feel yeah. good. I'm glad that I can thank give you, you that. Thank you. Honestly, <laughs> thank course. you for this like opportunity because, you know, I, I say it in my art tags. Like when I talk about right. my artwork, I, I write on my Instagram, like very meaningful, often posts that accompany it. But when I'm giving lectures, it's more about the work. So it's not really about like the thoughts that exist mm. in my head. So I feel like this has been a really unique and uplifting way to kind of get some of those thoughts out because it's constantly happening. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad because I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're for very, very inviting welcome. me and, and taking the time. To Absolutely. Talk to me. Thank yeah. you so much. So go look at art and make art and hire people to make art on the side of your garage or your business. 
and let the art have an impact on you and your community. I want to thank Jane Kim so much for taking the time out of her day and for sharing with such openness and depth to make this conversation possible. It was incredibly meaningful to me, and I hope we can nerd out and go hiking together sometime soon. Thank you also to Thayer Walker for helping out with coordinating calendars to make this possible and for making small talk with me when I first arrived at the studio and was still extremely nervous. And thank you to Chelsea Roberts for taking a photo of me by your amazing life-size blue whale heart painting. And I don't say this in every episode, but I am always grateful to my partner Stan for supporting this dream in very tangible ways, including a lot of solo parenting of our tiny kids, and intangible ways like all of the emotional support. Thank you again to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. I'm going to go sleep a lot and then send you new podcast stickers to express my gratitude. If you listen to the very end of the episode, I always tell you something interesting from my week. And this time, I'm going to brag. Because for the first time in probably a year, I turned and watered my compost. I started throwing food scraps in there again, and now I'm going out there every day to turn the compost and see if the carrot peels are dirt yet. And it's all very exciting. Okay, that's all. Thanks for being here. I'll see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes. You can find the link to the song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.